Um, we'll be reading uh, together uh, Revelation uh, chapter 11, a portion of that uh, text. Uh, we find ourselves uh, this morning picking up in the middle of uh, not only a chapter, but also what really is a continuous narrative uh, in the book of Revelation, uh, almost uh, as far as a, a section of scripture is concerned, almost in the middle of a sentence. Uh, so I want to remind us uh, before we read this text together of what Pastor Matt had read and preached uh, for us last week, uh, to, just to catch us up as to where we are before we read today's sermon text. If you recall, Pastor Matt had highlighted for us uh, something of the nature and identity of the church. Uh, we are first a worshiping uh, community. This is core to our identity, the worshiping uh, people of God. Uh, we also have a witness-bearing function in the world. We worship, of our, worship our God and we speak the truth of the gospel and the world and the word uh, in this world. Uh, that we exist for the glory of God is something that is unassailable. Uh, no matter what man may try to do, this cannot be taken away. And so John is told to measure the temple, remembering that the church is described as a temple of our God. Measure it. It is certain. It is sure, even while outwardly in the outward face of the church in this world is one in which we are often opposed and persecuted and we suffer hardship. And so it describes the outer courts being trampled by the nations for a time, but even as we meet opposition and hardship and persecution, uh, the church bears bold and powerful testimony to the truth. Uh, it is two witnesses that are described in Revelation 11, two witnesses reminding us of what is legally sufficient uh, for others to receive and to hear and to believe. It is certain and sure what it is that we preach and teach and share in this world. It is accompanied by great power. Uh, just as Moses and Elijah were enabled to do wondrous things uh, in the scriptures, so also, just as these two witnesses are described in Revelation 11, the church is endowed and given with the Holy Spirit, uh, that we have not simply our own power, certainly not our own authority, but we preach and we proclaim and we share with what is the power and working of the Holy Spirit, even in the midst of much hardship and opposition. This is the life of of the church in this world, and think just for a moment what you might expect to hear next in this text that we're about to read. As the church meets opposition, the church is unable ultimately in the sight of God to be eradicated, uh, and we have a powerful testimony with divine authority and divine power in the world in the face of opposition, we might expect one of two things to be described next. One, the conversion of the whole world. <laughs> or two, if not that, perhaps the conquest of the whole world. Uh, what we find in the text that I'll read for us shortly is not perhaps what we might expect. Uh, and it's a reminder to us that what we are dealing with here is not the word of man, is not a summary of man's expectations, but is the word of God. And it is what defines for us what we believe and what we are to expect because God has said it, not man. So with that in mind, would you please stand for the reading and hearing of God's holy word as we consider what is in store for the life of the church in this world. Revelation 11, I'll be reading verses 7 through 14. This is the word of our holy God. 
And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. May God add his blessing on this, the reading of his holy and inspired word. Please be seated. Uh, if anything bad ever happens, we're accustomed to, uh, uh, to thinking through uh, what had led up to the uh, less than desirable circumstances, perhaps considering how uh, something like that might have been avoided in the future. Uh, some of you are in school right now. If you uh, get a bad grade, you start thinking through your study habits, perhaps. <laughs> How can you improve uh, next time and not end up where, where you are now? If, uh, more seriously, a bridge collapses or gives way, uh, you consider the engineering design and perhaps the various inspections and responses that have been taken uh, to those so you don't find yourself in the same circumstance. If there is an earthquake, it's expected that there's damage, but if a building collapsed, you consider again the building codes and whether or not they had been uh, followed and enforced appropriately. Uh, some of you, uh, much more than myself, are, are fascinated, as interested as I am, fascinated and are well studied on the history of warfare and various battles, and it's interesting to think about how perhaps an outcome might have played out differently. Had defenses been stronger and, uh, and those on the defensive more prepared, if different offensive strategies perhaps had been made use of, if, if there were other preventative measures, uh, perhaps even those that might have avoided a battle or war in the first place. Uh, and God has given us as those made in his image, given us the ability to think through those things, uh, the ability of forethought and of planning. And it's an aspect of how it is that we love our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. How we love our neighbor as ourselves, that we think through those things. We seek as much as we are able to avoid hard circumstances where they are not necessary, even as we act in faith and love. It's an aspect of our obedience. But... In today's passage, in this instance, what is described in these verses does not come upon the church because there was a chink in their armor 
It does not come because there was some sort of blunder in their strategy. Uh, It does not come because there was some kind of alternative that had not been considered to avoid the conflict. Uh, What we read about in this passage is a time when the church is brought low and what had preceded it was only powerful, faithful witness in the world. But still, the church is brought low into a kind of shameful humiliation in the eyes of the world. Uh, That's what we're going to consider today. Uh, What happens to the church in this world? Uh, What happens to the church even when uh, there is a God-honoring, faithful, and powerful witness in this world? What happens to the church? I've already described it briefly as a kind of shameful humiliation. We'll look at that in a little bit more detail. That'll be the first part of the sermon, what happens to the church. But then the next part, the last part, will be why. Why does this happen? Uh, Why would God allow uh, such a thing? And this text gives us some very compelling and uh, significant reasons as to why, I've already suggested at least as to why not, is not on account of weakness or error or fault in terms of the faithful proclamation of the truth, yet still the church is brought low. Why? We'll learn that God is doing something to and for his people and that God is in fact accomplishing his purposes in the world. So let's consider first, how the church is brought low, what happens to the faithful witnessing church in this world. There's a shameful humiliation that the church undergoes in the eyes of this world. Look again at verse 7. When they finish their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Uh, Here the witnesses as a figure of the church is said to be conquered and then humiliated, overpowered and killed. Now that there is war, I hope is not surprising to you. Speaking in terms of the spiritual dynamics of war, if you have missed that, that that is a reality of the church's life in this world, um, you need to start paying attention. It's not the first time we brought it up in the book of Revelation. There is clear conflict. Uh, between the church and the unbelieving world, between the truth that is proclaimed and the unbelief and falsehood that is promulgated in the world. What is perhaps a bit surprising is the outcome of the war that's described here. We'll make war on them and conquer them and kill them. It's the idea of being overpowered and killed. Now, um, it's, it's probably uh, not meant to say that there is a kind of eradication of the church in this world. There are times in the scriptures uh, when absolute language is used to describe something that is more of a relative kind of reality. So Romans 11, don't turn there now, is one place where Paul refers to what is the disobedience of Israel even while he's speaking of what is true on the whole, but he acknowledges that there are still Jews who come to faith and acknowledge the Messiah, Christ Jesus. So it's not an absolute reality, even while he's speaking in absolute terms. It's probably something to that here. 
Uh, But whatever the case may be, it's at least something significant enough to describe the witnessing function and activity of the church in terms of it being overcome and killed. Uh, This is what's described here. We would expect perhaps maybe at least in death there's some dignity that's shown. We often do that uh, even when people that we don't love or like in their life when they die. There's a basic dignity of burial that's given. Here even that is withheld uh, from the two witnesses, even from uh, the church as it's seen. It's, we would prefer perhaps that anything to do with death is dealt in a, a kind of discreet, a private fashion. Here the reality of the church being brought low in this world is, is kind of internationally conspicuous. Look again at these uh, verses and in verse, four, verse 9, sorry, for three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and then refusing to place them in a tomb. There's nothing discreet about this. This, by the way, is probably one of the indications uh, that John is speaking more broadly here about the church in the world as he speaks of what takes place from all tribes, nations, and tongues and peoples. This is what happens to the church. It's, again, not in a private corner. It's seen by all, and in fact, it's right in the center of disobedient unbelief and opposition. The great city, which uh, spiritually or symbolically, it says, is called Sodom and Egypt, even then a reference to Jerusalem where their Lord was crucified. It's interesting, he uses the descriptors of probably four different places all in a very short amount of time. The great city is often described in the book of Revelation as Babylon. He then adds to it Sodom and Egypt, and then a reference to Jerusalem. The point is, we're supposed to think of those places that at various times in the history of God's people are seen to be the center of what is opposition against the Lord and against his people. Uh, And here, right in the center, right in those places, this is the place where the church seems to be brought low, where there is the shameful humiliation of the church in the eyes of the world. The church, as the bearer of truth, will be shamefully humiliated in the full view of her spiritual enemies. Now I ask you, are you okay with that? Does it offend you to read and to hear that that takes place. Because if you're tracking with what we're saying in this passage, being a part of the faithfully testifying community of the people of God means that this is what happens to the church in this world. Uh, Probably in focus here is something that has a climactic expression as we're at the point where right before the seventh trumpet is going to come the next text. There is at least that, and also perhaps in preliminary ways as this kind of thing happens to the church. Are you okay with that? Does it offend you? Because it says this is what happens to the faithfully witnessing people of God in this world. Now, it gets worse. (laughs) gets worse. Not only is there this bringing low of the church, but what is the world's response? Joyous celebration and exaltation. You've known the phrase, um, 
Uh, you never know what you got till it's gone, right? We, ha we have this sense that, oh, if the world only knew what it would be like if the church were gone. Well, here, there, there's a sense in which the, ch the world gets a sense of what it's like when the church is gone, at least in terms of its testifying witness in the world. And guess what? The world rejoices. Having a sense and experience, finally, of relief, as they're described as those who had tormented them. Uh, the, the place of celebration is even where their dead bodies uh, lie. Look at this, verse 10. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them. It's probably a reference to, to the location of the rejoicing. Uh, suddenly where these bodies lie, this is the place where people gather and celebrate. And then it describes also how they make merry and exchange presents. Probably when you hear that phrase, you think about what it's like for a family to be gathered under a Christmas tree and exchange presents. That's one of the few times we have where there's a mutual giving of presents. What may be taking place here is this idea of sending gifts, sending presents. Something that, that might happen between, uh, between dignitaries or high officials from various nations where they send a gift to another, much like the Queen of Sheba sends gifts, and she goes herself, but bringing gifts to Solomon, and it does two things. It both shows something of the worthiness of the recipient, that they would receive such glorious things, and also something of the splendor of the one who gives those gifts. Look at how much I have that I'm able to, to, to bring some unto you. This is a kind of celebratory, self-congratulatory rejoicing of the world. The world is patting each other on the back that finally there is a reprieve and a break. Um, <laughs> this is how we fit into the world, in the eyes of the world. Now, uh, before uh, we consider uh, why this happens, what is God doing <laughs> in such a thing? Uh, I need to, we need to have our attention drawn uh, to the two boundary markers uh, that surround or bracket this period of time. Uh, the time when the church is brought low for a time in this world, the shameful humiliation. There is something that happens that enables it to begin, and then also something on the other end that happens that brings it to an end. And it's so crucial to understand what this is. The first, what enables this uh, shameful humiliation to begin? Look at verse 7. And when they have finished their testimony. When they finished their testimony. Um, it will be finished. Uh, we need to recognize that what is taking place here is not that the word of God is being overpowered. It's not. Uh, but the proclamation of the word, even in the midst of hostility and opposition and persecution, uh, comes to a kind of finishing completion. A couple passages we've, we've turned to before, and I want you to hear them again. Matthew chapter 24, listen to this. Matthew, you don't have to turn there, but Matthew 24, verse 14 says this, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And then it will be proclaimed 
unto all nations. In a similar way, Luke 24, I want to read these verses again. These are words that Jesus speaks. And he's going to describe something that is written. And I want you to notice how the preaching of the gospel is coordinated with something else that is also written. Listen to this. Luke 24, verse 46. Jesus says, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. It is written, just as surely as it is written in the scriptures and therefore sure and certain that Christ must be crucified and raised from the dead, it is just as certain that repentance and forgiveness will be proclaimed unto all nations. It is certain. So what we read about in Revelation 11 is not the witnessing of the church being cut short. But when it is finished, when it is finished, this is what allows the bringing low of the church to begin. There's also, uh, as we see this, a kind of warning uh, to take note of. Uh, Insofar as the church does endure persecution and opposition, uh, there, there are Christians that die for the sake of the gospel not in incidental ways, but in very intentionally, intentional, explicit ways. And in that sense, at least, at least those particular persons who die, they, uh, their ability to themselves personally speak is, is stopped. Again, we see this in preliminary ways and also perhaps in a climactic way as seen in Revelation 11. Insofar as that is possible and as it is described in these verses, here's the thing to keep in mind. Uh, there is a time when the witness-bearing function of the church is finished and done. Um, The church does not proclaim the gospel in this world to an unbelieving world forever. There's an end point to it. Um, The prophet Isaiah, uh, about over two and a half thousand years ago, with these words, and they were applicable then, they're just as applicable today. Isaiah 57, verse 1, the righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. So here's the thing to keep in mind. The fact that the church is able to be killed is able in some sense to have its witness withdrawn in certain places and at certain times, so it's not as vibrantly obvious and seen, uh, shows the fact that it is a witness that does not last forever. Uh, There is at least a call to urgency uh, for the world. Now is the time to hear and to respond in faith. There is also a call of urgency to the church. Please hear this. Now is the time to speak. Now is the time to speak when the testimony of the church continues in this world. This is what begins uh, this time of the church being brought low when their testimony is finished. What brings it to a close? We'll look with me again at verses 11 and 12. Uh, This is where we have a reference to the passage from Ezekiel that Pastor Matt had read for us. Listen to what brings it to a close. Yes, there is a shameful humiliation of the church in the eyes of the world, but listen to this in verse 11. 
After the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet. And then verse 12, then they heard a loud voice, probably those watching on hearing this voice, heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, that is the two witnesses, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies uh, watched them. (laughs) The church meets much opposition, even at times death in this world. But I ask you, what fear do we have of death when our God raises the dead? What fear do we have of being brought low in the eyes of the world when our God raises the lowly unto the glories of heaven. Do you see that? What fear would we have of these things? Because we know the clear end that comes. What is life? And what is the glorious presence of our God? See, we need to keep this in perspective. The church is brought low. It's described here in Revelation 11. But keep it in perspective, the time of being brought low, the shameful humiliation, is a relatively brief period of time. John makes that clear in this text in two ways. One, you compare the time of the church being brought low. How how long was it? Do you remember? Three and a half days. And compare that to what was the time described last week of its testimony and witnessing in this world. Three and a half years. What are three and a half days compared to three and a half years? It is a relatively brief period of time, but not only brief compared to the testifying work of the church in this world, but also compared to the eternal glory that awaits the church. What is three and a half days compared to an eternity? I ask you, hardly anything at all. It is a brief period of time that is described here. Now, Uh, We are called, I believe, to do everything that we can in ways that are honoring to the Lord, everything we can to advance the witness of the church as much as we have opportunity to remove every hindrance to the free proclamation of the truth and of the gospel in this world. We are to pray for it. Uh, We are to desire it. We are to encourage others to do the same. But please hear this. Insofar, let's just imagine for a moment. That the church, if not in an ultimate way, or perhaps even in preliminary or particular ways, the church's witness is removed from a place. What does that mean? Uh, Surely, some of the language we've used before from this pulpit, surely it means that there is a kind of gospel darkness that is brought. The witness does no longer function, at least in the same way. It's a kind of gospel darkness. It brings what is a kind of, what is a woe for the world, and that is real. But please, I ask you, what does it mean for the church? Insofar as the church enters what is this humiliation and loneliness before the eyes of the world, what does it mean? Our resurrection is near. Paul, almost 2,000 years ago, wrote words that if they were true then, they are surely true today. Romans 13, 11, salvation is nearer to us now than when we first began. Already the Apostle Paul said that in his day. How much more now? It is a brief period of time insofar as we see it. 
We know that our resurrection is near. Now, if the Lord, uh, we do pray for this, that the Lord would permit our witness to continue. Uh, But insofar as we desire it, we seek it, we pray for it, and I do think that we ought to, that the Lord would be patient for a time, that the gospel might continue to go forward. Please know this, that insofar as we pray that the Lord would delay the time or even perhaps the particular circumstances of the world of the church being brought low before the world. We do not pray it for our sake. And we do not pray it for the worldly benefit of our children. We pray it for the sake of the world. Those are the ones who benefit here in that. What is it for us? Well, a brief period of time until what is our being raised before our God. Now, uh, we have a tendency, and it's easy to see, I hope, that the Lord surely is at work in what is the powerful, faithful testimony of the church in this world, even in the midst of opposition. So we see that what is this three-and-a-half-year period, as it's symbolically described in Revelation 11, this three-and-a-half-year period of the church testifying and preaching and continuing to be faithful, even in the midst of opposition with powerful authority, divine authority and power, we know and we get that the Lord is at work there. We also know that the Lord is at work in what's described here as the church standing up on its feet, being raised, right, with this life from God, ascending up into heaven as it's described. All of these things, we get that God is at work in those ways. But what about that period of time where the church is brought low? What is he doing there? Why does this happen? Why does this happen? Come, We sort of view what it means for the church to have a shameful humiliation in the eyes of the world as though it were this kind of a providential black hole. <laughs> or perhaps even a, the, the great exception to the ways that God is at work in this world. So why does this come? And just to frame this in a more practical way, uh, <laughs> you are bearing witness or speaking the truth of the gospel to someone, perhaps whom you've just met, more likely probably someone whom you've known for many years, someone you love. And you finally have the opportunity that you've been praying for, and you're able to speak of the hope that is yours and the hope that could be theirs, and the conversation does not go well. They think you're foolish, they don't believe it, and there's not the response you've prayed for. Um, We know that God is at work when there are conversions. We pray for it, expect it. God is still converting sinners' hearts. We know God, even in spite of that difficult experience, God is at work perhaps even teaching and training you for other opportunities you may have. But what is God doing in that instance itself? We're humiliated and perhaps even the person you've spoken to does not, in God's providence, ever come to faith. Why does that happen? That's the kind of thing we're addressing here. Why and for what purpose, what is God doing in the times where the church is brought low to a shameful humiliation in the eyes of the world? Well, two things. God is doing something to and for his church. On the other hand, God is still accomplishing his purposes in the world. Well, what is God doing to and for his church? What is he doing to his people, for us, for you? Well, uh, this is something that uh, Pastor Matt had tipped me off to about a week and a half ago when he was preparing to preach last week. And it almost made its way into his sermon last week, but preachers always have to be somewhat selective. So we're going to circle back to it now. 
uh, something very significant is going on in this text. And what you find is that the various things that happen to the church have a pattern to which they're being conformed to. There is a pattern that is set before the church endures these things. There's a pattern that is set in what Christ himself endures. And I want to show that to you. Uh, first, there is the three-and-a-half period of the church, three-and-a-half-year period of the church witnessing in this world. Reminiscent, is it not, of the three-year public ministry of Christ. Um, then there is the church endowed with divine power and authority in its public proclamation in this world. Christ himself also, the beginning of his public ministry, the Spirit of God poured out upon him at his baptism. Uh, the church also, um, as the, uh, the time of humiliation and even unto, of their death comes after they had finished their testimony, so also Christ, you remember the words on the cross before he died, it is finished. Uh, the church, it says here, killed where? Where their Lord was crucified. It's one of those places where John says, if you don't see it yet, let me make it very specific for you. Christ was crucified. That's the backdrop to the church being killed and brought low in this world. The world rejoices when the church is brought low in a kind of unifying celebration. So also the nations uh, uh, gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And what is the crucifixion of Christ? The church raised after three and a half days, Christ having the same uh, reminiscent of the brief period of his death before he was raised. The church ascends to heaven in a cloud. Christ ascends to heaven in a cloud in full view of the disciples, just as the church in full view of its enemies. Do you see the connection? There's a pattern of what takes place with Christ first, and the church is being conformed to it. This is, even in the church being brought low in this world, what is this God is conforming his people to Christ, and in these things he is giving us Christ. Listen to how Paul uh, describes this in terms of his own experience and hope and expectation. Philippians chapter 3, turn there if you would. Uh, Paul has already in this letter to the Philippians, chapter 1, verse 21, said, for, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He understands that insofar as he does have life, it is unto fruitful ministry and the Lord's continued working in the church through him. But even if he were to die, it would be gain for him. And then Paul circles back to this idea of gain. And he gets more specific about what he gains. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And something very significant happens next as Paul is describing the power of the resurrection what it means for Christ's resurrection power to be at work in him. Notice what he includes within this category of resurrection life in terms of his experience. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain 
the resurrection from the dead. What does this mean for the church? (laughs) We gain Christ. It's an encouragement to you as well as a challenge that insofar as we are engaged in whatever kind of ministry, fruitful ministry, God-honoring ministry in this world, bringing the gospel to those who need it, if Revelation, if you understand what we're talking about in Revelation 11, we know that there is a time when even these things come to an end. So I ask you, what will you have then? We do not minister simply for ministry's sake, but for Christ's sake. Even when these things are taken away, what we have is Christ, and he is gained uh, even uh, in such hardship and persecution. Uh, This is what the Lord is doing to and for his people. Even in us being brought low, we are conformed to Christ. We gain Christ. But what is God accomplishing in this world? Well, I've already pointed out uh, some of the ways that there is a similarity uh, between how it is what the church experiences and the things that took place uh, in Christ's own ministry in this world. But it's interesting to notice some of the differences between what happened to Christ and what happens uh, to the church. Christ was crucified outside the city gates. The church is figured as killed here in the city. Uh, Christ, um, uh, Christ, we know, was buried as his body was taken down from the cross. The church, however, was not even buried in this text. Uh, Christ um, ascended and his uh, disciples saw him church. The church, when the church ascends in this passage, it is the enemies who see uh, what takes place. There's something interesting that happens here in that uh, where Christ, the, one of the most amazing events that has ever taken place where Christ is raised from the dead in the tomb. Do you know that while Christ appeared as raised from the dead, there was no human witness to the resurrection itself? But notice here in Revelation 11 that the world sees life given to the church that had been brought low. See, God is actually showing something and displaying something and putting almost on a clearer, more public display the power that is at work in Christ and therefore at work in his people. So what do we make then of verse 13? Let's just look at this briefly. At that hour, after it is that the church is figured as ascending into heaven, that hour there was a great earthquake, a tenth of the city fell, 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, oftentimes in the scriptures, the idea of giving glory to God is associated with faith and repentance, right? Um, But there seems to be something a little bit different going on here in the kind of terror that comes accompanied with this earthquake. And I want to show you at least one place in the scriptures where this kind of language is used. Joshua 7, verse 19. This is after the people of Israel had suffered a defeat at Ai. They come to find out that someone had taken some of the forbidden things from Jericho, a previous battle. And Joshua comes and he confronts the man who has done this, Achan, And he says this right before they end up stoning this man. It says this, Then Joshua said to Achan, Joshua 7, 19, My son, give glory to the God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. 
See, even here, uh, where what is done comes to light and is seen, and even in what precedes what is the stoning of Achan, there is a call, give glory to God. It's that kind of thing that's displayed even in our own text. And the point is this, that in this text, what God is doing in this world, even where the church is brought low, he is still accomplishing his purposes and his ultimate purposes in this world, which is this, for him to get the glory. God will get the glory. Uh, His ultimate purposes in this world, even for the church, are not our material well-being. I hope you know that. This is a bit harder to admit and for us to say, but God's ultimate purposes in this world are not even to convert as many people as possible. Now, as much as we have opportunity, we seek repentance and faith in those who now do not believe. But the ultimate purposes of God and to which our hearts must be oriented and what we seek most ultimately is that God will get the glory. And what we see in this text is this is surely what our God gains and what is brought unto him. Uh, Let's stand.